Um, so if I've not met you before, my name's Soph. As Ian said, I'm a site pastor here alongside him. And it's my joy today to be uh, preaching and finishing our series on grace-filled community. Now, that may come as a surprise to some of you because Stu Gray um, from the Central Site came and joined us a couple of weeks ago and did a preach in the series and had this wonderful analogy that he was finishing the series and that he was the last man in the 4x100 relay. And I was sitting there thinking, it's such a good analogy that I don't have the heart to tell you, Stu, that actually it's the fourth of five. <laughs> so... <laughs> I'm just going to kind of do the action replay maybe of the relay um, and take the baton and pass it on to you to take it and run with it at the end. So uh, we are in the final, I promise it actually is now, the final um, talk in the series. So to recap, grace-filled community is a value that we believe God's called us to as a church. It's an aspirational value. We don't think we're 100% there yet, but it's something that we're working towards together. And essentially what we believe this looks like is that we welcome everybody, we forgive quickly and love extravagantly. And the talks so far in this series have covered seeing people the way that Jesus sees them, treating people the way that Jesus treats them, learning to bear with one another, to love one another, um, and learning to forgive each other because we've been forgiven. Uh, it involves practicing authentic hospitality, and a couple of weeks ago, Stu unpacked the story of the woman who anointed Jesus' feet and the lesson that that teaches us about forgiveness. If you've missed any of the talks, you can get them on the website. So I recommend you do listen back because they've been amazing. And today, we're going to look at what it is to be a community where we are changed by grace. Where people can come in, encounter Jesus, and begin a journey of following him and being transformed where we follow Jesus together and learn to become more like him. What does that look like? Now, our vision as a church is to be captivated by Jesus. And when we're captivated by him, we can't help but be changed by him. And the Bible is full of stories of people encountering Jesus and being changed as a result. Um, there's a Samaritan woman who is just getting water from a well and she bumps into Jesus. And as a result of her conversation with him, she goes back to her village, starts telling everybody about him and just becomes an evangelist overnight. Um, Jesus invites himself over for dinner with a guy called Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector. He's quite corrupt. Um, and as a result of meeting Jesus, he does a complete 180 and promises to pay back anything that he has wrongly taken and give half of his stuff away to the poor. Total transformation. And some of you will know the story of the Apostle Paul who dramatically encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus and his life completely changes. He goes from being a persecutor of Christians to actually a, a church planter extraordinaire starting the early church. So he's completely transformed. Encountering Jesus means that we are changed by grace and it means that our lives are transformed. Could we maybe shut the door? That's quite that I love that our kids are having a great time worshipping, but I'm... So let me ask you this. If you are here today and you would say that you are a follower of Jesus, do you recall the moment when you first encountered him? Do you remember that? I think it looks, it looks different for different people. Um, and I love this quote from Pete Gregg. An encounter with God may be dramatic, as it was for Paul on the Damascus Road, but for most it's a gentler process, more like the gradual dawning of day than fireworks in the night. It doesn't really matter how you encounter the Lord, but it does matter eternally that you do. 
And we say every week that this is a safe place to explore faith. And if you're on that journey at the moment, you're so welcome to just come, just ask questions, and just be part of the community. And our hope and expectation is that in that process, you will encounter the life-changing love of Jesus. And that was my experience. And some of you maybe know some of my story. I came to Vineyard as a student. I was brought along by my housemate. And I was really struggling with a lot of insecurities about my identity and my self-worth. I was desperate to be loved and looking for it in all the wrong places. And I was carrying a lot of hurt from broken relationships and some stuff that was going on in my family. I came and I met Jesus and he slowly began to change me. Some stuff happened almost overnight and certain habits and behaviours just changed. My whole attitude towards drinking and towards sex just changed. But some stuff took more time. Some stuff changed more slowly, like learning to be generous and learning to give some of my money away. But as I was meeting Jesus, he was transforming my character. He made my heart softer. And my sister, I'll never forget this, essentially just said, you're a lot nicer than you are, in a way that only a sister can, I think. Um, But it was true. I was becoming more gracious and God was softening me. And Um, About a year into being on this journey of faith, something really painful um, was like unearthed within my family. And I know for a fact that previously I would have just shut that person out of my life and be like, no, that's it. You've gone too far now. Um, But by the grace of God, I was able to just extend love and forgiveness um, and deal with it so differently. And through that process, my family could see that there was definitely something going on and something that was different. When we encounter Jesus, we are changed. So what role does the community have in that process? I would say the first thing is to invite. If I hadn't been invited along, then who knows where I might be now? Um, We always want to have a culture of invitation. What we have isn't just for us. We're inviting people in. And the second, and what we're going to focus on this morning, is providing the right environment in which change can happen healthily, a place where we're safe to explore, we're safe to be hurting, we're safe to be processing stuff, to be messy, and a place where we all acknowledge that we're in it together and we've all got our stuff. So today, we're going to delve into a passage that I think has a lot to teach us about what this looks like. So if you've got a Bible with you, why don't you grab it now and turn to John chapter 8, If you don't have one, don't worry, because the words should come up on the screen behind me so you can follow along. So just to set the scene, um, as Stu explained when he preached a couple of weeks ago, the Pharisees are not a huge fan of Jesus. He is kind of stirring up some trouble for them, and they are desperate to get rid of him. They want to tarnish his his reputation, and people are starting to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and that is posing some problems for the Pharisees, and they think they've found the perfect opportunity to get rid of Jesus. So we start in John chapter 8 from verse 2. It says this, At dawn he... Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. I'm just going to pause there before we carry on. Um, I've got to be honest and say there was part of me that wanted to find a different passage to preach on this morning. Uh, 
because I, I read this and I just cringe at the way this woman is being treated. Um, and just a few questions arise. Is anyone else wondering why it's only her that they've brought in? She has been caught in the act of adultery, but you cannot commit adultery on your own, can you? And where is the man? And I think if the Pharisees really were so concerned about the law, they would have brought him in as well. That's not their primary concern here, it would seem. And secondly, looking at this topic means that we have to broach the subject of sin, um, which is jolly and lighthearted, isn't it? Um, if you asked any of the women in my office about sin, they would start talking to you about slimming worlds and diets and like counting the calories that you're eating. Um, that's not what we mean when we talk about sin here. Essentially, we would say it boils down to choosing to go our own way instead of God's way. Sin entered the world when Adam and Eve decided to go their own way. Um, and each of us does have an inherent ability to be sinful. Um, but the good news is there is good news. So if you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is a bit heavy for a Sunday morning, I can promise you it gets better. So if we go back into the story, according to the laws given to the people of God by Moses, which we find in the Old Testament, the punishment for adultery was death. So the Pharisees have got Jesus in this situation where if he doesn't choose to stone her and implement the law, he would totally undermine all his credibility as a rabbi. And yet if he does, he would be breaking the laws of the land. Under the Romans, the Israelites weren't allowed to enforce capital punishment. So whatever he does, they've got him. And as it says in the text, it was a trap. But what happens next is interesting. So carrying on from the second half of verse 6, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote in the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Wow. So there is plenty to comment on there. Generations of Christians have speculated, what was he writing in the ground? The text leaves that a mystery. We'll never know. Maybe we can ask him one day when we get to heaven, what were you writing? Was it a list of the sins of the people around him? Or was it just the name of the woman's equally guilty partner? We won't know. But one thing's for sure, Jesus, in doing that, has completely changed the situation. He's taken the wind out of their sails. I kind of imagine them barging into this time of teaching, like, right, what are you going to do about this now? Hmm? And he takes the wind out of their sails. He transforms that situation, and he bends down, and he just distracts attention away from the woman in that situation. And from that point, Jesus has two clear messages, one for the Pharisees, and one for the woman. To the Pharisees, he says, he without sin can cast the first stone. And to the woman, he says, I don't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. So for the remainder of this morning, I'd like to look at those two different messages within the account and what they mean for us as a community. So what do we learn from the way that Jesus responds to the different people in the story? Um, and what does that look like as we put it into practice, as we try to be a grace-filled community? What do we learn here? So let's start with the Pharisees. 
So Jesus is saying to them, he without sin can cast the first stone. What does he mean by this? And I think essentially it boils down to you're not perfect, you've sinned in your own life, and it's not for you to judge. And for someone to say that to the Pharisees is massive because they prided themselves on being holy, on obeying every single letter of the law, of being without sin. That was their thing. So for Jesus to say that is very offensive to them. And in that moment, they were thinking, we know like, what's going on. He's completely turning the situation around. And it It's easy for us to see the Pharisees as a bit of a pantomime villain when they come into the Gospels. We can be like, oh, here comes trouble, you know. But actually, I think in reality, it is all too easy for us to become like the Pharisees ourselves. For example, driving. So I don't know about you, but when I'm driving, I feel like everyone else is doing it wrong and I am doing it right And ironically, as I was preparing this and trying to think of a good example, I couldn't think of an example of me driving badly. I could only think of an example of Ian driving badly. (laughs) And then realised that is exactly the point, isn't it? Like, I can't see my own faults. I can only see yours. And there was a moment yesterday where... um, Can I share it? I was like, I've got to use this. I've got to use it. We were pulling into a car park and just, like, people were kind of in the way and stuff. And Ian was just like, nobody around here knows how to drive. In doing so, mounting the curb as he tried to park the car. (laughs) It's like, classic. Now, obviously, that's a light-hearted example. But the principle, I think, is true for all of us that we can easily point out the flaws in other people and fail to see that we ourselves are not perfect. Um, Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus warns us against being hypocrites. And he says, don't point out a speck of dust in someone else's eye when there's a whole plank of wood in your own eye. We've got to deal with our own sin first, and we have to acknowledge that we are not perfect. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As I said at the beginning, we've got it in all of us to be sinful. All of us have. And in that moment when Jesus is saying, he without sin can cast the first stone, the Pharisees have got to admit to themselves that they've also sinned. It may not be as obvious as the woman who's committed adultery here, but all of us have fallen short. And I love this quote from a writer called Rachel Held Evans. She says, at least for a moment, the religious leaders got it. Jesus hung out with sinners because there were only sinners to hang out with. He was making a point. And we have that understanding that we ourselves are not perfect. We also realize it is not for us to judge. The only person who can judge us is God himself. And as I said earlier, there is good news because God isn't just a God of justice. He's also a God of grace. So what what does that look like? There is a story that I love that illustrates this concept beautifully. So there's two friends. They have been friends forever, childhood friends. They grew up together. They went to school together. Um, And as they hit adulthood, their lives just started to go in totally different directions. One went to a really prestigious university and ended up qualifying as a lawyer and eventually finds himself all the way he's become a judge. And the other, for various circumstances, ends up spiralling and he ends up in a life of crime. And one day, as fate would have it, the guy who's ended up a criminal finds himself in court faced with his childhood friend who's the judge. The facts were clear, 
the defendant pleaded guilty, he had no excuse, he did commit the crime. So this judge has got a dilemma because he recognizes this guy who's his childhood friend and he knows that you know, things have gone wrong here, but he's got to be just. He knows he's guilty, he's got to distribute justice, that's his job. If there was no justice, it would be total chaos, wouldn't it? So what does he do? Well, the judge passed the sentence and fined the defendant 20,000 pounds. That is justice. But then he gets up, takes off his wig, takes off his gown, and walks down to the level of his old childhood friend and writes him a check for 20,000 pounds. And that's grace. And that's the kind of God that we have. God passes a sentence for our sin, and then he pays a penalty in full himself. And that's exactly what Jesus does for the woman in this story. So if we jump back in from verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. According to the laws of Moses, she should have been condemned to death. But Jesus sets her free and says, neither do I condemn you. Why? Because ultimately, in the end, Jesus was going to pay the penalty for her. She didn't have to die because Jesus was going to. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, he took upon him all the sins of the world and paid the penalty for our sin. Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Romans 8 verse 1 explains, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. She was not condemned, she was saved by grace. And in doing so, Jesus doesn't then say, so, you know, crack on as you were, go back to life as it was. He says, go and sin no more. Which, in other words, is you've been set free, now go and live out of that freedom. Later in the same chapter, Jesus describes those who, who sin as slaves to sin, but says those who the Son has set free are free indeed. He's saying you've been set free, you're no longer a slave to sin, you don't need to go back to your old ways. He's saying now that you've been saved by grace, go and be changed by grace. And the same freedom is on offer to us. We can access it the moment we invite Jesus into our lives to be our Lord and Saviour. As I quoted earlier, it doesn't matter how you encounter Jesus, but it does matter eternally that you do. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith. When we put our faith in Jesus, we're saved by his grace. And then when we begin to follow him, we can be changed by grace. We don't have to live with addictions and patterns of behavior that make us feel guilty. We've been set free. We don't have to live with unforgiveness and insecurity, strangling our lives. We've been set free. We don't have to live believing that our only worth is based on the money that we bring home or the way that we look. We've been set free. The moment we say yes to Jesus, the slate is wiped clean and we're saved by grace. And then as we begin to follow him and allow him to shape us and grow us, we're changed by grace. So what does this mean for us as a church? What does this teach us about being a grace-filled community? Well, firstly, it means that the invitation that we extend to our city is quite simply, come as you are. That is the invitation that we extend to our colleagues, to our friends and neighbours. 
to anyone who's exploring, just come as you are. We're not going to judge you. We've all got our stuff. None of us are perfect. The church is not supposed to be a museum of perfect people. And if it looks that way, then we're doing it wrong. It is a family. We often describe this as a family meal. And again, to quote this writer who I love, Rachel Held Evans, she puts it like this. The church is God saying, I'm throwing a banquet and all these mismatched, messed up people are invited. Here, have some wine. That's the church. There's no conditions to entry. There's no exam that you have to pass. There's no uniform you have to wear. Just come as you are, pull up a chair. There's room for more at this banquet. When the prodigal son returned home, some of you will know the story, his father doesn't stand there and list all of the things that he's done wrong that he needs to apologize for before he's allowed in. He welcomes him with open arms. He runs towards him. And that's the heart of God that we display when we say, look, just come as you are. We want to extend a radical welcome. There's a guy called Brian Heasley. He is part of the 24-7 prayer movement. And some of his story is shared in Pete Gregg's book, Dirty Glory, which I highly recommend if you've not read. It's safe to say Brian had a really complicated childhood. His mum died while he was young. He got caught up in a life of crime. He had been brought up with a faith. And during a stint in prison, he cried out to God in desperation. And then the story continues. Slowly, God began to put Brian's life back together. Turning up at a church in a rural Norfolk town one Sunday as an ex-con on probation after his fourth spell in prison, Brian found himself invited to lunch and accepted, not condemned. The church loved Brian unconditionally, and gradually he began to find healing and restoration. His childhood faith came alive. Before long, he was offered a job as the youth pastor. He eventually met Tracy, a beautiful girl who'd eventually become his wife. And then a full decade after arriving at the church as an angry, broken man, newly released from his fourth stretch in prison, Brian Heasley was asked to become its pastor. What a transformation. Imagine if the church had said, we're not comfortable having you around, or you need to get your life in order before you can come in. I don't know about you, but I, for one, am excited to be part of a community where broken people can just come in and find restoration, because that's all of us, isn't it? And that's what it means to restore the city. So we say, come as you are. But there is also a second part of that saying. It's come as you are, but don't stay as you are. Jesus says to the woman, now go and leave your life of sin. He says, now that you've been saved by grace, go and be changed by grace. As I said earlier, for me, when I encountered Jesus, some stuff changed almost overnight as the Holy Spirit just began to transform me. It says in Romans 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And God definitely began to renew my mind. I was a 20-year-old student who suddenly didn't want to drink loads of alcohol and I didn't want to go out on the pool. And my housemates were like, what have you done with the old Sophie? You're completely different. I was being transformed. I was set free from carrying the pain of unforgiveness. I was set free from insecurities and the desperate need for male attention to make me feel validated. I became captivated by Jesus who showed me that he loved me and that he's the foundation on which I should build my life. And it's an ongoing journey. I am not the finished article. I do not stand before you as the perfect disciple. But the adventure is that he is constantly inviting us into deeper relationship and a greater measure of freedom. 
go and sin no more isn't just go and stop doing bad stuff. It's an invitation to live the life to the full that Jesus offers us. It's an invitation into freedom. So let me ask you this. Would you say that you've grown or changed much in the last 12 months or so? Is there any aspect of your life that might not be God's best for you, but you've just settled and allowed it to become part of who you are? For me, I would say, I know that I worry too much. Jesus quite clearly says, do not worry. And yet I allow myself sometimes to just get in such a tiz about things that I don't need to worry about. So is there any aspect of your life where Jesus might be inviting you into a greater measure of freedom? And if so, let's help one another to get there. That's what small group's about. That's why we meet up with people. That's why we ask, how are you actually doing? That's why we always offer the opportunity on a Sunday to encounter God, to be prayed for, that we support one another on that journey. I want this to be a place where when people are in crisis, we run towards the church, not away from it. This is a place where you can just come, bring your stuff, and we love and support each other into that freedom. And I believe that is at the heart of a grace-filled community, an understanding that we've been saved by grace and we can be changed by grace. And it's not just changed in that we learn to cut out certain patterns of behavior. That is part of the process of discipleship, but that's not the full measure of what's on offer. We're changed in that we become captivated by Jesus and we respond to his invitation into freedom. So come as you are, but don't stay as you are. Don't settle for less. Don't stay stuck in your ways. Come and meet Jesus and come and be changed. And that's the invitation that we offer to the world around us. Are you weary and heavy laden? Are you thirsty? Are you lacking in purpose? Are you feeling unloved? Come to Jesus. Come and find freedom. Come and be changed by grace. So in finishing, over the course of this series, we've outlined our hopes for our grace-filled community, that we see people the way that Jesus sees them, that we treat people the way that Jesus treats them. We love one another. We bear with one another. We extend authentic hospitality and we invite people in. We forgive one another. And finally, that we are a community where people are changed by grace. Where we say, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. Come and meet Jesus and be set free. So why don't you stand if you're able to, and we'll just invite God to come and...